Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Nathaniel David. He goes by Ned for short. Ned is the co-founder and president of Unity Biotechnology. The company, founded in 2011 and based in Brisbane, California, is based on an emerging school of thought around clearing out senescent cells. The wager at Unity is that by clearing out these senescent cells that accumulate in old folks, it should be able to treat certain diseases of aging, starting with osteoarthritis. But Unity's ambitions go far beyond osteoarthritis. It bills itself as a company that's extending human health span. That's not the same as simply extending human lifespan, helping people live longer. The marketing makeover at Unity, and some of its contemporaries, is partly an effort to distance itself from the hucksterism and wishful thinking that has long dogged the science and commerce of anti-aging. Ned David is trying to walk a line other entrepreneurs have been down, where they want to captivate people's imaginations about what's possible around vitality in older age, but without going overboard and indulging in Ponce de Leon fountain of youth fantasies. But immortality is really an alluring and enduring myth. Remember telomeres, sirtuins, and the singularity? Yikes. At age 51, Ned David is an interesting character to enter this arena of biotech that's been so long on hype and short on results. He's a serial scientific entrepreneur with an impressive string of successes, such as Kythera Biopharmaceuticals, Cyrix, and Achaeogen, along with a few battle scars, Sapphire Energy and Kilimanjaro Energy, to name a couple. He gets exposed to a lot of far-out scientific concepts through his long-standing role as a venture partner with Arch Venture Partners. Ned also has a myriad of interests that span science, business, and policy. I always enjoy talking with him, and I think you'll enjoy hearing how he thinks. Okay, now before we dive in, a few plugs. If you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you will love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Over the course of a full year, that's quite a bargain if I don't say so myself. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license, are available at a discount. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. And are you planning a conference, a team building event, or a leadership retreat? I've developed a presentation based on my Mount Everest summit expedition. Everest talks feature gorgeous photos from the world's highest mountain, along with lessons on leadership and teamwork. Ask me about an Everest talk at your event or at your company. Luke at TimmermanReport.com Lastly, do you want to see the Long Run Podcast continue? The data on audience growth and demographics, along with anecdotal feedback from listeners, say that this show has been a big success. And yet, something's not quite right. This show has been without a sponsor since June. The show costs me money to produce every episode. I won't keep doing it forever without a sponsorship. So, if you like this show, and you want to raise your brand awareness among the most innovative people in biotech who listen, then let's talk. Luke at TimmermanReport.com Okay, end of sales pitch. Sit back, relax, and enjoy listening to Ned David on the long run. With me today is Ned David, President and Chief Scientific Officer at Unity Biotechnology. No, wrong title. Yeah, I'm actually co-founder and president. Co-founder and president. You don't yeah. call yourself Chief Scientific Officer? No, we have one of those who's actually a small molecule drug discovery guy, which is the kind of person you want if a bunch of your drugs are small molecules. Okay, okay. okay. So important clarification, but okay. Ned, I mean, you're also a venture partner at Arch Venture Partners. Is that still true? That is still true. Okay, good. Okay, good. Yeah. But basically, Unity Biotechnology, if I've got this in a nutshell, is a company that's working on a uh, small molecules for uh, what we believe to be a fundamental process of aging, clear, helping the body clear out these senescent cells that contribute to a whole number of different disease states, mm -hmm. we believe. 
Is that basically the gist? That's basically true. Um, now, in addition to that, so Unity is a health span company. So what that means is that we try to come up with all sorts of ideas in addition to clearing senescent cells that extend this period of time in your life we call health span. So we define this as this period of time when you're functionally young, when you don't have a bunch of the diseases that come along with being old. And because aging as a process is a, there's a variety of mechanisms that work sort of together to create the phenomenon that you or I would call aging. So it's stuff like loss of your stem cells, uh, stuff like loss of mitochondrial function. Uh, it's, uh, there's a nutrient sensing system that seems to adjust the rate of how you age. And there's these things called circulating youth factors. These are proteins that you don't make as much when you get older. <laughs> and we work on that. And then we also work on this phenomenon called cellular senescence. And we spent the last seven years focused on that mechanism in particular, not because it's the only mechanism that contributes to aging, far from it. We focused on it because of the aging mechanisms that have been identified to date. It's the easiest to make medicines against. And that's because what you have to do is kill cells that don't divide. And that seemed and continues to seem to be the simplest idea for intervening in the natural aging process. These are cells that are hanging around. They're not growing and dividing. They're not dead. They're, they're hanging out and mucking things up. <laughs> That's right. So they're very much alive. Uh, they just don't have the ability to divide. And what they do instead is that they redirect their energy to producing all sorts of these pro-inflammatory molecules that distort local tissue function. So uh, imagine you're a muscle cell or um, a liver cell. And what you'll see is that a few percent, we're talking one or two percent of the cells in say a 50 or a 60 year old would be senescent and be creating and secreting into the local tissue microenvironment over a hundred soluble factors. And these factors drift around in the tissue and instruct nearby cells to do the wrong things. It was very confusing for a long time about how senescent cells could possibly, when they're in such a low percentage, make it so that your tissues didn't work properly. And it was in 2008 that my co-founder Judy discovered that senescent cells were dedicating a huge amount of effort to essentially poisoning the local tissue microenvironment. And so when we make a drug, that eliminates these cells, we eliminate the source of numerous factors that are driving local tissue dysfunction. And that's the idea in a nutshell. Okay, so you've got a scientific rationale here for going after uh, diseases of aging. You don't call yourself an anti-aging company. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's important linguistics here for marketing reasons. There's been a whole lot of, uh, you know, late night infomercial, lotion and potion business and the anti-aging world. And uh, if there's one thing that I know about you and your background, it's that um, you, you had this one success previous of bringing science to um, a traditional non-scientific field of so-called medicine, that being aesthetics, right. uh, with the kythera, right. uh, right. uh, clearing out chin fat, <laughs> um, you know, it, so with a scientific basis uh -huh. to go into aesthetic medicine. And that was successful. It was sold to Allergan not too long ago. Um, Good for you. Okay, so now, let, but let's rewind here. So you, you've got this this interesting uh, background that's led you to this point of bringing science to traditionally kind of huckstery areas mm -hmm. of medicine. Um, so how did you get on this path? And let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from? Um, I was born in San Francisco, and I was raised just north of San Francisco. And um, I, as a as early as I can remember, I loved science. So when I was a little kid, and uh, I was particularly drawn to Star Trek. I, I remember when I was in third grade, I saw it for the first time. And Okay, frame of yeah, reference, yeah. we're talking about aging. How old are you, chronologically anyway? I am turning 51 in about a month. 
51. Mm-hmm. You, you don't look 51. I don't know what I'd peg yet, but do, have you done this like whole biological aging thing or is I, that a whole bunch of bunk? Uh, well, I have no, not examined it carefully, so I cannot speak to its utility. I, there certainly are um, excellent tools for measuring uh, your uh, age as determined by this thing called the methylation clock that's been cross-correlated across a lot of tissues, across a lot of individuals, that works wonderfully. I've never run the methylation clock on myself. My expectation is I would look dead on 50, 51. Uh-huh. Because it's very hard to move that clock, even when you put... You can do it a little bit if you calorie-restrict animals, but they don't move very much in that clock. But the stuff that's available widely, like the telomere measuring stuff, doesn't correlate with aging. Okay, yeah. so you don't bother to do it. I won't either. Yeah, okay. uh, you're, you're 51 years old chronologically. Yeah. You say you're, you're getting interested in science like early on, elementary school, third grade. Oh, yeah, very much. I, Star I, Trek nerd. Yeah. yeah, and so I thought as a young kid, I was thinking, how can I get to, because I was, I was struck by how these teams of people in the Star Trek universe would work together to solve these terrible problems. And it, what I was really drawn to were the values uh, that were manifest by these people. And it was values like um, teamwork, uh, uh, the use of logic to solve through thorny problems, um, uh, compassion, Fairness, and I think a really big one for me was hope. It was this idea that um, that even in dire circumstances, that if one ever pulled together and thought clearly and worked hard, that a better world could be found on the other side. So you pick up all this from Star Trek? I did. Do you yeah. identify with, with Spock or anybody? <laughs> um, I, I identified with Spock a lot um, when I was young, although I'm not particularly Spock-like. Um, <laughs> We, you say I, this while you're wearing a hoodie and you've got a little a second day scruff and yeah, long yeah, hair. Yeah. You do not look like the uh, an officer on a publicly traded by, company, by the way. Um, yeah, I know. I probably got to work on that. <laughs> I, I do clean up better when when yeah. Austin can speak to this. Um, that um, when told to go look that way, I, I I do a better job of that. You can but, put on a tie and read off a script. And, well, I don't read off of a script, I, uh-huh. um, but uh, I have a pretty good memory. So if I told to say something. I can't even remember it. So, okay. So yeah. Star Trek is inspiring, but you know, you're 51 years old. I mean, it isn't like, you know, uh, the guidance counselor one day could say, you know, Ned, you ought to become a biotech entrepreneur. That wasn't right. really happening. Yes. Maybe it was in San Francisco at the time. I don't know. So, I, I, you know, it's, it actually kind of was. So when I was a little kid that, you know, Genentech was being formed. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of at a very low grade level aware of it. Um, but I would say that the Star Trek idea probably contributed in some way to my ideas around entrepreneurship because what I was struck by was the power of this team of people dedicated to a mission that supported each other. And when I started doing science, and science was then and continues to be the single most beautiful, motivating uh, force in my life, you know, in, in addition to being a parent and a husband, right? It's it's my version of spirituality, right? It's just, it's the thing that I live for, and so and that was true back then. And so I I pursued a scientific career. I went and got my PhD, but what I started uh, so I did my undergrad at Harvard and doing uh, biology and biochemistry, and then did my PhD at Berkeley. Public schools and or pu- private schools? Um, mostly private. Uh, so I did public well, school my well, second grade year, and then after that, it was always private. What did your mom and dad do? Um, my dad sold electronics equipment, and my mom was a teacher. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so not exactly science, uh, you know, right. being talked about around the dinner table. No. Um, in fact, they found my interest in it very perverse. <laughs> right. Um, and um, I would say, you know, uh, to this day, my, my parents, uh, I think they are proud of what I've done, but they, it's not their natural inclination. Um, Do you have siblings? Were they I, into it? Uh, my sister was not particularly into it. So my sister is a writer who lives in Los Angeles. And uh, But in any case, when I, I started noticing as I was getting older that there were, and I was uh, did my undergrad and then my PhD, there were certainly elements of team and mission. Were you drawn uh, to biology right away? Yeah. Well, I, I liked chemistry a lot too. Uh, and I still like chemistry. I think it's beautiful and um, has tremendous explanatory power. 
um, I just found that um, I could make the largest impact uh, doing biology. In fact, a lot of what I do kind of lives kind of at the nexus between chemistry and biology. So you took all these kind of courses at Harvard, casting yeah. about like a typical undergrad, yeah. figuring out what, what it was that got you excited most. That's correct. Uh-huh. And, um, and I remember in my either sophomore or junior year, my professor, George Whitesides, who's this wonderful guy um, who has this very strong physical resemblance to Captain Jolly Picard from Star Trek <laughs> and kind of spoke like him as well. Um, I remember him showing a peptide bond, which is this chemical bond in proteins, and how they could spin around this axis. And they had these side chains that allowed the proteins that, that they made up to form these beautiful shapes, these three-dimensional structures that drove the biology and biochemistry of life. And I saw that for the first time. I said, I want to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> and it was at that moment that I decided. This would have been, where about what year? This would have been 1987 or 88. Okay. Right? Okay. Now, Whitesides would have been entrepreneurial even then. Yeah. He had founded a few companies, but he didn't talk about that. That would be considered uncool. Uh, in, or maybe get him in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's a little bit more porous these days, but back in those days, uh, that was not something one did. Um, but um, anyway, I would go to you know, George's office hours and we'd talk about things. And I was also very – I'd go to Mark Potashny's office hours. He was a big mentor of mine. And then I had a, my undergraduate thesis advisor – was probably my single biggest force was a guy named Ernie Peralta. I did his postdoc at Genentech and then became a professor at Harvard at age 31. And uh, he, you know, because I was an 18 or 19-year-old or something at the time, and so he sort of took me under his wing and treated me like I was a younger brother, taught me to clone. Um, He, you know, spent, and and it, it was really he who kind of put me on this, you know, path. Well, and culturally, you would have gotten the idea that, that um, people in industry are not hacks. I mean, because, you know, there were certain high priests in biology at that time who, right. you know, would turn their noses up at industry. Yeah. Uh, and, or, you know, couldn't imagine any bright young student would ever want to go there and right. crank out widgets when, you know, we could explore the meaning of life. Uh, there was that, that bias. Uh, but if you've got a guy who had been at Genentech, who's now Harvard faculty, he shows you yeah. An, another way? Yeah. And and actually, I would say that at that time, I would say the um, to the extent there was that feeling, it was starting to melt. So, you know, Mark Potashny, who was a high priest of gene regulation. Co-founder um, of Genetics Institute. Yeah. And then you, George Whitesides, yeah. you know, uh, who did a series of biotech companies, um, still, still doing them. I think Mark's not doing that anymore. Um, and then there was Ernie, who uh, came out of Genentech. And... Um, you know, Ernie sadly died in his early 40s of glioblastoma. Um, and he was a very um, uh, important force in my life. And, um, and So how did you, um, what was your next step? You said you got the PhD. Right. Is it still at Harvard? I know, those at Berkeley. Okay. Okay. And so actually it was between, uh, I took two years off between uh, Harvard and Berkeley. And Ernie got me a job at a biotech company working for his old boss at Genentech, um, a guy named Dan Capon. And uh, that was a company called Cell Genesis that ultimately spun out another company called Abgenics. Mm-hmm. And my job, I was part of a small team there that worked on a project called the Xenomouse, which has subsequently became Abgenics, which got bought by Amgen, which spit out drugs such as Repatha and Prolia, because this mouse was genetically engineered by us to where we knocked out its mouse genes to make antibodies and we cloned and then moved into the mouse's genome genes to encode human antibodies. Well, let's let's back yeah. up a second. I know the abgenic story of yeah. humanizing antibodies, but did you uh, did you ever think about going down the academic road um, or, or or was well, something did something like get you excited about industry? Well, I I always had this sort of feeling that it lent itself more to the Star Trek ideology of doing these companies because you get these large teams together that could pursue a mission. Whereas academic labs, just the way they were constructed and funded and conceived, just couldn't take on missions of that sort. They could take on 
missions that tended to be smaller. They tended to be funded in these kind of incremental buckets. So you, but you couldn't take on these kind of grand missions. And I like the fact that the company was a, for lack of a better descriptor, a very powerful organizing metaphor for collective action, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, yeah. it's do or die. Right. I mean, if you're Genesis right. at that time, you've got some venture capital. Maybe you're publicly traded, but you don't have any products on the market. Yeah. You, you can't just coast on past greatness. You either create this thing or you go out of business. Yeah. And so, 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 uh, so as a consequence, um, I sort of always had this intuitive feeling that um, company making would be a powerful means to bring about social change. And so, and I continue to believe that. I, I will say that I have, from time to time, some occasional professional jealousy of my friends that went an academic route, but it's relatively infrequent. Um, uh, it's, I would say that there might come a time in life where I would want to seek out an academic position, but that's not right now. This part of this humanistic side of you, I think is part of what uh, interested me the first time we met. It reminds me, I think this was back uh, probably eight, 10 years ago in San Francisco. You're, you had just come off of a couple of successes. I mean, right. you were part of Abgenics. Abgenics was successful with humanized antibodies. Um, Kythera was in there, the, the chin fat company I referenced earlier. But then- Two you, others, too. There, there were a couple of others. Yeah. But with, with that, have two approved drugs. So Cirex, which I, was my first company I founded, which I founded while I was in graduate school at Berkeley, um, uh, ultimately got acquired by Takeda. And we now have an approved drug from that called Allogliptin. That's a DPP-4 inhibitor. And then after founding Cirex, I founded another company called Achaogen, which has been a sad story in the sense that the company's, first of all, the core technology we based it on didn't work. But the company then subsequently got a gram-negative uh, antibiotic approved, but it's been a commercial real tragedy. Can't sell it. You can't sell it. And, um, and so and this is a fundamental issue that I would like to address later in my life about what is wrong with these assets that are mispriced. So um, uh, I agree. Antibiotics. Yeah. We, yeah. we don't pay nearly enough. Yeah. Uh, on a cost benefit, you know, quality adjusted life year, however you want to look at it, yeah. uh, we should be paying more. We pay a lot for cancer drugs and dirt next to nothing for antibiotics. And so my view is that there are solutions to these problems to reprice assets correctly, but they require um, um, essentially uh, political will um, to recognize problems that have you know, multi-decade timescales and uh, the willingness to say, you know what, this is going to be a big problem. We need to change how these are priced in a very deliberate way. Well, let's come back to yeah. these concepts of how science connects to society, mm -hmm. because this is near and dear to me. But um, back to the biography, you you get mobbed up with Arch Venture Partners, mm -hmm. uh, Bob Nelson. Right. Uh, how does that happen? Oh, so I met Bob during a cage, and this is back in 2002, so 16 years ago. And Bob is... I think the single most gifted kind of person who I've met and who is currently working in biotech to channel uh, resources together. And I mean resources of all kinds, intellectual, human, financial, to build these great human efforts to do things like make CAR-T work, make um, um, a liquid biopsy, detect cancer is hiding in your body with a drop of blood, you know, or to, you know, in the case of unity, um, make entirely new classes of therapies to change how we age. Well, these are more yeah. recent bets by right. Bob and right. Arch. Right. Uh, but back in 2002, I actually knew Bob in 2002 as well right. when I was starting right. out as a reporter. And he was right. just this quirky, weird guy with attention deficit disorder who yeah. had some like phone that answered, oh, hi, I'm Wildfire. Uh, I'll yeah. try to find Bob. It was some automated thing yeah. before anybody had any of this weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's just a, a <clears throat> how, how did you two hit it off? Oh, I explained a cage to him. And I remember he called me. He was sitting down in, in a meadow somewhere explaining to me why Arch should invest in it. And I remember thinking, this guy's very quirky and delightful. I really like him. And I've worked with Bob unswervingly ever since. And he's backed um, a series of my ventures, some of which have been successful, some of which have been catastrophic failures. Mm -hmm. um, so things like um, a cage 
which was successful ultimately scientifically and from a clinical development standpoint, but it's not been a commercial success. Uh, Kythera, which was by many metrics successful, but worked on something pretty pedestrian, right, in the grand scheme of things. You're not saving the starving kids in Africa no. with a chin fat drug. No, you are not. And you're not really doing particularly new or interesting science. We did do some interesting science there uh, relating to aesthetics, but it's it's not the kind of thing I would normally do. The, part of the reason I loved working at that company, found that company, was I worked with some, such exceptional people, um, many of whom work with me today here at Unity. Um, and then um, what I did do with Bob, which was perhaps one of, I would say professionally, one of the big failures, but something I continue to be proud of, was uh, Sapphire which was our efforts to make genetically engineered algae to produce a liquid transportation fuel. And we ultimately raised a few hundred million dollars for this. We created a fuel and we flew jets around. We drove cars across the country. But ultimately, it was not something that could economically perform uh, given the volatile costs of oil. And the fact that these assets are mispriced. Crude oil that we get out of the ground needs to be crazy expensive for these kind of projects to be justified at at big scale. Or there might be a slightly different way to do it. You could, um, while not altering the price of the oil, you could legislate, if it were important and priced correctly, that a certain portion of this resource would be purchased at a high price, okay, for, say, use in the military. And, you know, it, so that sort of an approach um, has been done in the past. And things like this were done early in the development of the petrochemical industry so that it could gain the current financial legs it has. And it needed some subsidies. Yeah. Lots of industries need subsidies. Yeah. And we use that as a dirty word, but, you know, the Internet was subsidized. <laughs> right. And so my belief is that in the long run, um, I believe humanity will kind of mature on this point and come up with ways to more appropriately price some of these assets, things like liquid transportation fuels, antibiotics, or I can kind of, I have a list of about a half dozen things that... Algae we, biofuels, catastrophic failure, uh, yeah. big, big pile yeah. of money in yeah. the ground. Yeah. Um, okay, but um, now some people listening to this might think, geez, you're, you're kind of all over the place with these scientific uh, interests. Right. Um, what is there a common thread here? Um, I like to work on things that I think are incredibly cool. And I use the word cool not to try to make light of what we're doing. I, I use the word cool very deliberately. So when I say something is cool, it's an idea that when you hear it, it gives you goosebumps. You know, where you, you part something deep in your soul is touched by it and you say, oh my God, that's cool. It's beautiful. Something that kind of when you hear the idea, people are joined by it. They are inspired by it. It will make a difference if yeah. it succeeds? Yeah, typically. You know, I would say Kythera was sort of um, a lark in that sense. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, but everything else I've worked on has absolutely been like that. And I'd say Unity is very much in that vein. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe for $149 a year per person. Discounts are available for companies and universities with multiple readers. More than 60 pharma companies and universities have gotten group licenses, which come at a discount. For more information, write to luke at timmermanreport.com. And do you want to get your name in front of the most innovative people in biotech? Sponsor the Long Run Podcast. Ping me at luke at timmermanreport.com. You know, this comes back to that point I was trying to make when we first met, and I think this was around Kilimanjaro Energy. Mm-hmm. So you, I think you had just come off of Kythera, and, and mm-hmm. you at that time, you said that you and your wife had had your, um, your first child, right. and that you were thinking big. This is part of what struck me is that, that nexus between your science and uh, humanistic view of, of your role in society, because you said the quote I had you uh, down for was that when you're holding your son, this little being, you suddenly realize you are finite and humanity survived pretty well for tens of thousands of years without access to modern medicine. 
But if we don't reinvent our energy production system, we might not survive the next 10,000. So you're thinking about carbon emissions and what do we do about that? How do we keep the world um, safe for human habitation? That's, that's pretty big stuff. And that, and that is an unsolved problem. It was, yeah. I, I do believe that I will return to that problem. But I think you can't, um, I don't think it's a problem that I would approach again, starting with technology. Technology would be the last thing I would do. Rather, I would start with policy. So I would spend time, and I don't think you could necessarily do it in the United States because of the way our government system works, but a more centralized government that can make decisions. Um, Controls on emissions. Yeah, that just decides one day that we're not going to use plastic bags anymore or we're going to buy $500 million of worth of every approved antibiotic, you know, the day it's approved on the barrel, right? You know, a country that could do that is the sort of place where you could go and um, lay the groundwork for some of these solutions. But And you could, rather than creating a single company with some technical idea on how to solve the problem, you create an ecosystem to spawn dozens of companies. But this was techno-solutionism. This yeah. was, yeah, yeah let's, let's, was... let's do carbon sequestration. Yeah. Let's capture it from the atmosphere and, and get it underground yeah. or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Didn't yeah. work. It sort of worked technically, although not at the economics we'd hoped. We certainly could grab CO2 from the atmosphere and release it in a, in a little box. But there was no business that could be imagined that we could make work. And we spent very little money getting to that point, so that was good. Okay, Okay. so fail but, fast, fail yeah, cheap. Yeah, but, it, but I would say that the lesson I took from it was if you're trying to do something that has a, is trying to address a mispriced asset, don't start with technology. You know, that's what I, and now my attitude is that's what kids do, right? You know, you've got to start with policy and, and fix it there because that's where the problem is. We have a lot of faith in techno-solutionism in mm. this country and not very much faith in policy. Well, that's why, <laughs> well, there's a reason for that, okay? And so my feeling is that there are countries that can do top-down planning um, to properly price assets and fix these sorts of problems. I just think you have to pick the venue in which you do it. And um, the United States is wonderful for lots of things, mm-hmm. okay? Um, it's not great for that. Okay. Right. Okay. So right. um, things don't work out business-wise right. at Kilimanjaro. So you kind of go back into the bullpen at Arch and you look for something new. Mm-hmm. Um, is that how you came upon this, uh, the, the, the founding research, what became Unity? Yeah. So I was not um, explicitly interested in aging per se um, when all of this started. I, rather, I, it was 2011 and I was actually sitting in Calgary, in Canada, at the airport, eating French fries, when five different people emailed me the same PDF of an article. And they um, had subject lines like, holy shit, you have to read this, okay? And they and, were not coordinating no, their no, attack on you? No, no. And, and, they, and, and I opened up, you know, I opened it up, and it was this very simple idea. And it was that, as these animals age, they accumulate these cells that don't divide anymore. And if you delete them, uh, a bunch of features of aging either don't occur or occur far less. And I looked at it and said, oh my God, we have to do this. Now, was this in mice or was this in this some was, kind of Petri dish? This is in mice. Okay. And it was in, an, and there were things about the mice that were quite unnatural. So the mice were genetically engineered to age quickly. The mice were also genetically engineered to contain a little piece of DNA in every one of their cells so that you could eliminate the senescent cells whenever you wanted. Now, humans are neither. We're not engineered necessarily to age quickly. And we certainly aren't engineered to have a little genetic switch that allows us to clear senescent cells when we want. So like a lot of academic science... It's interesting. It's provocative. Mm-hmm. Begs a million more questions. Right. So we spent the next four years asking and answering at relatively low cost four fundamental biological questions. And these were four questions that were kind of the killer questions that, that if any of them answered no, you couldn't do a company based on it. But if all four answered yes, then you were good to go. And so Arch and uh, Wu Shi, um, our 
partners in China funded this. And um, the questions were, um, do senescent cells contribute to natural aging? Not in a weird mouse, but in a naturally aging creature. In that case, it was a naturally aging mouse. Second question, could we find a molecule, a small molecule drug, that could safely eliminate a senescent cell from a living creature? Okay. Because small molecules are something you can make a business yeah. around. Third question was, could we find a disease, any disease, that we could model in an animal or in a human piece of tissue taken from a living person while that tissue is still alive, that when you eliminated senescent cells, that the, that the disease proce process either halted, slowed down, or went backwards? Because right. aging itself is not a disease. That's at right. At least in the FDA's definition. Yeah. And so we had to find something that, that the FDA would think was a disease, or you and I would label as a disease, where eliminating senescent cells did something good. And then finally, we had to prove that eliminating senescent cells with such a molecule wasn't bad for you, or bad for an animal, so I say. And that took us four years to answer the four questions. We started in 2011. That's right. So this takes you all the way through 2015, 16. Yeah. Now... Back up here, the, the environment that you're entering in 2011, I mean, there had lots of skepticism, lots of hucksterism and anti-aging, this and that. I mean, the whole late-night infomercial stuff is a big sector of the economy. But then even in sort of, you know, science-based anti-aging, there's, you know, all this calorie restriction. I mean, I guess, you know, that actually does work. But nobody, no, nobody wants to live that way, right? <laughs> yeah, no one wants to live that way. Um, that's right. A thousand calories a day. I eat that for breakfast, by the way. Right. Right. <laughs> I need a lot more. But uh, then there was like the Sertris Sirtuins. That mm -hmm. was kind of a bucket of bolts sold to GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, others have come along kind of in your cohort now, which, you know, uh, as I was jotting down notes for this, uh, this I try to put them in a nutshell. There's Calico out of Google, which is big secret. But smart people like Hal Barron and Daphne Collar have left. Uh, Human Longevity, Inc., dumpster fire. Um, Unity Biotech, big market value, kind of to be determined, mm -hmm. I guess is what I would call you guys. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. Are there others that I'm missing? Um, well, there's a, a series of smaller ones. And my suspicion is that um, when, um, when the day comes when we have our first demonstration of technical success... Um, I expect there will be a bunch more companies that emerge. And I also think that pharma companies can, you know, I mean, if, if you want to talk about competition, I think real competition will come from pharma companies because, you know, uh, Roger Perlmutter at Merck can decide to dedicate a few hundred people to an idea overnight, right? Yeah. And yeah. so... He gets to be the fast follower. Yeah. And so I would say that that is where... I would expect the very muscular competition would come from. There's, there's a handful of other companies that um, nominally are kind of in the same area. So there's a company called Samu Med. Yeah. Um, I don't have any transparency into what they do. $12 billion market cap. It's good for making the cover of magazines. You've been on, in the magazine. I don't know, were you on the cover of the magazine? Because you know, you're, you're the modern-day Ponce de Leon. This is like the, everybody's favorite fantasy, like the fountain of youth, right? <laughs> the mythical uh, fountain of youth. Wouldn't that imply it? Give it to us, Ned. Yeah, yeah. And sadly, that's not what we do. Yeah, so, um, and, uh, and the reason that's not what we do is that we don't know how. Can't right? you turn me into Benjamin Button or something like no. this? No, okay. So, <laughs> so what we do know how to do, though, is we do believe and have evidence in support of this idea that there are specific diseases of aging in which a you know particular disease, an aging process, is driving a particular disease. So you know things like osteoarthritis, where we've demonstrated in human beings that senescent cells accumulate in the knee of a patient with osteoarthritis, and the more senescent cells you have, the worse your osteoarthritis is. They tend to accumulate with age. Not too many thirty-year-olds have osteoarthritis. That, a lot of 70 and 80-year-olds do. That's correct. But we, what we did is when normalized for age, when one simply correlates degree of severity of the disease, so for example, how, how much bone have you lost? How much pain are you in? 
um, what you see is that the more senescent cells that are present, it correlates with each one of those variables in a way that pain, or with a way that age does not. Merely age cannot explain those correlations. Right. So you, I mean, people have different mechanisms for going after osteoarthritis. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of good ones. No. Uh, the, <laughs> if you think about it, the standard of care for osteoarthritis is being told you are old, live with it, and you can take an NSAID or be injected with a steroid, or if very serious, you can undergo a surgical arthroplasty and have the joint replaced with metal. But there is a mechanism that is in operation that is driving this disease. And if you knew what that mechanism was, you could intervene. So this looks like, you know, when you draw up the list of potential indications, as you're answering some of those basic questions that you just walked through, um, osteoarthritis rises to the top of your development priority list. Because why? Well, osteoarthritis is typically not thought of as a disease pharma goes after with any fervor because no one's ever understood how. And so people don't even define it as a market explicitly the way they do, say, a statin or a lipid-lowering drug. Um, The reason it, it came up in our estimation as to why it's worth tackling is that osteoarthritis, and I don't want this to seem overblown, this is not hyperbolic, this is true, osteoarthritis is the primary reason it hurts to be old. So as I sit here right now, um, my back is in pain. Really? Yeah. So I'm going to the neurologist because I have, uh, my family gets degenerative disc disease prematurely. Uh, My father is more or less a functional invalid as a consequence of this. And I desperately hope that I will be able to intervene in my own process on this, lest I become like him. Mm-hmm. I don't run anymore as a consequence of this. Do you do yoga, have a stand-up I, desk? I do, all, kind of... I do all sorts of things. Yeah. But, um, but if we understood this mechanism, um, if we're right about this mechanism, we don't yet know we are. But if we are, and you could intervene, you could redefine how people utilize the various chapters of their lives. Well, and the yeah. potential market is tens of millions of people, <laughs> and more, as the baby boomers get older. That's obvious. A uh, small molecule, you know, you cheap and easy to manufacture, can do it at scale. Uh, now you just got to show that the, mecha- the mechanism is right. And you have to pick the right molecule. And I will also tell you that biotech is hard, and... My last company, Kythera, we put four things into the clinic. And of four that went in, one emerged successfully, which it had efficacy and it was safe. Uh, And so when we think about something like Unity, there's no first principles reason to imagine that our statistics will be dramatically different. Many of the things we will try will not work. And we won't know why. Did we choose the wrong patients? Did we choose the wrong molecule? Was our disease hypothesis wrong? And you don't know in advance what's going to work and what doesn't. And so one of the ways we approach that here is we have multiple shots on goal that are sort of unfolding in a generally similar time frame. Just for osteoarthritis? No. I know you have other indications, too, under this broader thesis mm-hmm. of diseases of aging. Right. I mean, that's... For osteoarthritis, we have one program now that where we're in a single ascending dose safety tolerability study that is not set up to answer really the biology question. It's really asking the question, is the molecule we're putting in, if you give one dose of it, is it safe or not? Now, we're going to learn that first quarter of next year, and and you won't really get the answer to the big question that we're all trying to ask and answer, which is, does the elimination of senescent cells from a site of human disease associated with aging does that elimination halt or reverse that disease? Reduce pain, reduce joint damage. Now we're getting into the clinical endpoints yeah. that, are, that are relevant. So in the case of osteoarthritis, both of those. Um, in the case of the other indications we're contemplating, so um, we will file um, two INDs next year. One of them... Uh, one or more of them may be in the eye, where we will inject into the vitreal fluid, vitreous of the eye. 
a molecule that can eliminate senescent cells, targeting a disease like diabetic retinopathy or diabetic macular edema, or AMD, that's age-associated macular degeneration. These are all diseases where we hypothesize, and there is evidence in support of this hypothesis, that senescent cells are driving pathophysiology of disease, and their elimination may halt or slow or perhaps even reverse features of that disease. Now, how important do you think the targeted delivery is? Because, well, I don't know, I'm, when you say osteoarthritis, I'm thinking of a systemic, mm -hmm. uh, orally available small molecule, or is that not the case? So if you want to, the way we think about what we're doing at Unity from a science point of view is we imagine the life of the company as these chapters. So we're currently living in what we call chapter one. Now, chapter one ends with the successful demonstration that the elimination of senescent cells from a human being who is aging takes a heretofore inescapable aspect of aging and treats it. And our mission for the next few years of the company is a successful completion of chapter one. Now that includes osteoarthritis, it includes a handful of um, diseases of the eye, uh, may include um, a few other diseases that we have not given any guidance on yet because uh, we are a public company. Um, but when we demonstrate this, what we'll have proven is that this idea that we've shown in mice works in a human being. And that's really when everything begins to change. Right? Why this new kind of emergence of language around what you call healthy human uh, health span? Uh -huh. I think that that's it. I mean, the, I, if I am reading this correctly, it's something like, this vision that I'll live to be 80 years old and I'll play golf and climb mountains or run or whatever it is that I like to do and then just, you know, drop dead of a heart attack at 80 and, and not spend, you know, 20 years like in, on life support or in some nursing home or, you know, kind of at home depressed. So why the change in language? Yeah. Well, um, in part, it's because that's what we know how to do. So we don't have a way to dramatically extend your lifespan. And it's not our mission to do that. What we do have are tools that allow us to target specific diseases that are scourges of age, osteoarthritis being chief among them. Um, you know, but I would say that, um, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm going to the doctor today because of osteoarthritis. I mean, I would give financially almost anything to not have that disease. And, but uh, I'm going to say we can go further with this. So um, one of our collaborators, Darren Baker at um, uh, the Mayo Clinic, published about a month ago a paper in Nature demonstrating that eliminating senescent cells, either with a drug or with the genetically engineered animal that I described earlier, can profoundly blunt cognitive decline in an animal genetically engineered to have cognitive decline. Now, the history of Alzheimer's is littered with failures that begin like that. Uh, last time I checked, it was over 135 clinical trials, $16 billion, more or less disproving the A-beta hypothesis. <laughs> well, and especially when you get into these neurological indications, mice are not human beings. That's correct, and so the way I would like to believe that what we're doing is fundamentally different is, you know, there's over 160 different animal models that have been reported to try to model Alzheimer's in some different way. And they tend to be themes on, say, a half dozen different gene products like A-beta, APP, alpha-synuclein, this, you know, these type are, you know, presenilin-1. These are the things that tend to be all breathed together. These models are executed in young animals. And one of the things one obviously knows about Alzheimer's is young people don't get Alzheimer's. It is a disease of being old. So I'm offering an alternative viewpoint. Rather than talking about Alzheimer's from the lens of the particular molecular mechanism that has been implicated because of human genetics, consider for a moment targeting Alzheimer's, not that way, but as the outcome of a fundamental human aging process. Senescent cells? That's an idea, uh -huh. right? 
And do you run the risk here of, of you know, every every you know, problem looking like a nail? Absolutely. When, when you've got a hammer? That's absolutely. So imagine, for example, that only one out of every five things that you think is a nail is a nail, and four out of five of them are, say, um, a piece of, you know, uh, salami or something, and you, you hit it with the hammer and something not what you want happens. <laughs> That's but, biotech. <laughs> yeah. So the, the point is, though, that um, um, we recognize that in our discovery strategy and our clinical development strategy, that we will get it wrong most of the time, but we will not always get it wrong. And what that means is that if you have the resources to go and identify which of these disease indications is in fact driven by the presence of senescent cells. If you can find a molecule that can selectively remove them safely, uh, you know, either through local or systemic administration, and it works out, you know, it was worth all the risk, right? And, and, and failures to get to that point, because once you're at that point, you will then have the resource just to search out all the diseases in which these cells are driving. Well, disease. you know, coming back to the business and the financial perceptions and all that, I mean, you and Keith, we didn't even mention Keith Leonard, CEO yeah. of the company. You two worked together at Kythera before. I guess that's a good sign when two guys work together before, they have success, they come together again. At least, uh, at we, least you don't strangle each other. No, we love each other. <laughs> no, do, you, do you compliment each other, like strengths and weaknesses? Absolutely. We are very different people. Um, Keith is, in my view, the single best biotech CEO who's working today. Um, really? Why is that? Um, well, a few different reasons. Um, so one of them is he has this capacity to be both um, uh, strategic and extremely high altitude, so high that you can see the curvature of the earth and see the stars, uh, even in bright daylight, while still having complete grasp over the micro details of the business operation. I know no one else who can span those two realms so effortlessly. I certainly cannot. Forest and the trees. Yeah. To use the old metaphor. Yeah. Okay. And, and then the other thing about him is his just physical constitution is, uh, is unparalleled. His ability to simply uh, do so much. An IPO roadshow, he can go for 20 hours a day. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then immediately fly off to China, then fly off to the opera. And I'm someone who, I'm a little bit more like a sort of, you know, uh, I'm, my constitution's a little more delicate. Um, <laughs> uh, and so think of me as a sort of inbred pet that, um, you know, you know, needs to sort of rest. And, but, I, but I spend my time trying to work on creative problems. A lot of artists need that, that right. downtime. Right. A little bit of boredom. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> a little bit of slack yeah. in your life to allow <laughs> the great idea to marinate, germinate, and then spring forth. Yeah, I'm, I'm very limited. I would say my, my most finite resource is attention, right? And I need to do things that allow me to recharge my attention battery. And so Keith and I are very different in that way. And Keith tolerates my process and has for 15 years. And uh, we continue to work. I would say we work together uh, now better than we ever have. Um, okay. Well, you guys have raised a lot of money. you got a good market cap. It, it gives you some flexibility to pursue some of these other kind of projects. This is not a one-product company. You know, mm -hmm. you haven't put all your eggs on that osteoarthritis basket. Mm -mm. You, you can play around with this cognition stuff that you're telling me about. Well, we're, we're working on a variety of things. So the drugs that will... So cognition is in the far future, we think, what we, if it works at all. Um, what we're working on immediately is the osteoarthritis, which um, that's in clinic now. Um, next year, as I mentioned, there'll be two more INDs, um, some of which will be ophthalmological, and, um, and at least one will be, and then we're picking amongst some others. We're letting the biology drive that second choice. And... In a, and so that's what's happening in Synolysis. Now, as I mentioned, we're not a Synolysis company. We're a health span company. And so what that means is we also are working on some biology that is not removal of senescent cells because senescent cells are not the only reason you age. We know this because if you eliminate them from mice, mice don't stop aging. There are inflammatory factors in yeah. there too, other yeah, well, things. Well, they just... They age for a lot of reasons. Toxins <laughs> accumulate. 
Well, you know, and so we don't know. So right now, if you ask me, like, why do things age? We don't know the answer to that. We do know specific mechanisms that contribute to aging. And we know which of these mechanisms at present we can intervene in. And so we all um, have another program. We have a protein that uh, we have not issued guidance as to when we're taking it to the clinic yet. But it's a protein called Clotho that uh, in animals boosts cognition. And when it's overexpressed, extends lifespan. And uh, this is a very interesting project that we're doing in collaboration with uh, Dina Dubal at UCSF. And we also are very interested in mitochondrial health and how mitochondria, as we age, accumulate profound levels of mutation in their independent genomes. And as you know, in, if you look in a 70-year-old person in tissues in their colon, 50% of the cells wind up unable to utilize oxygen to make energy. I mean, wrap your head around that for a moment. We should actually talk about this offline because the cellular mitochondria is a subject that comes up in high-altitude physiology. We, I, I talked with an, a biologist about this prior to my Everest trip. Um, things that you could do to try to um, encourage more production of cellular mitochondria before you go to the mountain uh, so you can effectively process the oxygen that's there. <laughs> yeah. So there's various genetic means to boost mitochondrial biogenesis. And some of these, you know, now one of the issues, if you just do that, you also amplify um, a bunch of the bad mutations that have occurred. In fact, in some cases, the bad ones amplify faster. <laughs> and it's all in an effort to sort of make enough mitochondria to function because you've got some dysfunctional ones. But what if you could understand and develop therapies for ways to correct some of these problems? And so that's an area of great interest of ours as well. Okay, so we're almost out of time, Ned. Last thing I want to ask you, as a, um, a, a scientifically creative and curious uh, person with wide-ranging interests that we've covered here. Um, what do you do to uh, nurture that uh, and not get just in your swim lane, grinding it out day after day after day on this one thing? How do you um, stay fresh and creative? What, what kinds of things do you read or listen to oh. or, or art that you take in? Oh, I obsessively read science fiction. So any moment in time I'm reading or listening to, I, I'm always reading one and listening to another. Sometimes I'm listening and reading two, two or three different things. Um, I read science fiction. So right now I am reading, um, I am now 60% of the way through the all canon of Ian M. Banks. I'm actually reading two of his books right now. Um, uh, Surface Detail, which is uh, the culture series. Uh, this is the uh, book series that Elon Musk gets a lot of his worries about AI from, his worries about um, that we all live in a simulation. And it depicts humanity, you know, on the order of 20,000 years in the future. And in a, what do they call a post-scarcity era, in which you have infinite resources for anything. So, and there's AIs who run everything. And what, does, what do humans do? And so um, I spend a lot of time <laughs> reading that stuff whenever I'm... You look a little amused, like you're yeah. not, not buying this. No, I, I just, <laughs> no it's just, it's, it's more just that uh, I'm, I'm, it's very impractical in many ways, so I'm slightly embarrassed talking about it. But it, it, I would say that I recharge my hope sort of batteries by reading kind of utopian visions of a, of a better v version of our world. Um, and so, um, anyway, Ian M. Banks is a big one. Um, uh, so a lot of reading. Um, I also, uh, do you listen to books on tape? Like I, when you're driving? I, I, I do driving and also during certain types of workouts I do. Mm -hmm. The other one that I read that I loved was the three body problem series, which I cannot say enough about. Um, it fundamentally altered my perceptions of time in a way that no science class ever did. You know, the concept of deep time. Like, what does 18 million years really mean? Because it doesn't mean anything viscerally to either of us. It's a number, mm -hmm. right? When you read this book, you will suddenly have this strangely physical appreciation of how big a number that is. And in a way that's like subjective knowledge, like what's it like to hang glide? Or what's it like to be on the peak of Everest? You will suddenly think, oh, 18 million years. I, I, I feel that now. It's not just a number. Ned David, thanks very much for joining me today on the Long Run Podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Luke. This was fun. 
Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. If you're interested in sponsoring the show and getting your name in front of biotech thought leaders, send me an email at luke at timmermanreport.com. See you next episode.